Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. My name is Laura Taro, and today on the podcast, we have Katie Gadini as our guest to talk about her new book, The Struggle to Stay, Why Single Evangelical Women Are Leaving the Church. This book looks at the struggles and stories of women in the context of evangelical churches. Katie is a sociologist at the Social Research Institute, University College London. She is also an affiliated researcher in the University of Johannesburg's Department of Sociology. She previously worked in the prevention of gender-based violence in Peru, South Africa, Spain, and the United States. Katie, we are just so excited to have this conversation with you today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Laura. It's an honor to be here. I'm so happy to speak with you both. Well, Katie, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about your academic writings in journals. Uh, I'm a Bible guy, but uh, I saw this book somehow, and I said I I want to read this because not only are single women ignored in churches now i'm my experience is mostly evangelical churches but the tension that you uh, bring to the surface in this book is one that uh, i learned from and as i read it i thought this is going on more than i know it and it's the tension of a kind of promise of equality you correct me if i'm wrong here a promise of equality that never quite happens. And as a result, uh, there is hope for these women, uh, sort of a, a lingering hope that keeps them plugged in. And then over time, it can just uh, wear them down and they, they pull the plug and either kind of back off in their commitments or uh, walk away from the church entirely. So. Uh, s- summarize that, you know, if I've, if I've given it incorrectly. So. No, I think that's exactly right. I think um, what I learned through my research, which, you know, has been really started about nine years ago, is that depending on the type of woman you are, the type of single woman you are, there's particular challenges that you're going to face. And there's particular ways that you're going to feel excluded from the heart of your church community or your faith community. Um, So not all women feel that and not all women feel that, especially in the beginning of getting involved more in church life. But as time goes on, especially women who remain single into their 30s continue to feel somewhat sidelined in the church. And this can be compounded by other factors, um, especially women of color, women who have a working class background or women who have personalities that are ambitious or not seen as being um kind of more ideal well this is this is an issue and um and it probably it's going to apply to women who are married at times uh as well in in slightly different ways but uh you're a you're a sociologist who does ethnography and i read uh is her name lurman uh who, she wrote this great big ethnology on Pentecostals and vineyard movements. Mm, yeah, Lerman, SM, yes. Lerman. Ta- okay. Tanya Lerman, yeah. Yes, yes. And I, that was a little long for me, but uh, it was a good book. But mm. ethnography does something a little bit different. And that is, I just want to mention this uh, for our readers. 
is that you're going to end up concentrating on one or two or three or four characters rather than just doing sociological demographics and analytics. And those individual stories bring to life your book in a way that I, I just found so compelling. And at times I thought, holy mackerel, this is really interesting. This, this could be a sermon illustration for, for some people. But tell me, in light of this tension, why, uh, why are single women attracted to evangelicalism's churches? So a lot of women grow up in the faith and they have what I call a traditional trajectory. So that means that they grew up in some form of Protestantism and then around their teens or around university age, they strayed. They had a period of rebellion, of walking away from the faith. They weren't as involved. And then sometime in their 20s, often in their early 20s, they come back to the faith. And there are multiple reasons that would attract, especially a single woman, into the church communities. So um, moving to a new city, being in this period of limbo after university, starting a new job, um, wanting more friends or wanting a sense of belonging or community is, are, are really valid reasons um, that women and men, to be honest, would be attracted to particularly the closeness that forms of evangelicalism afford. So um, as you know very well, you know, evangelicalism isn't a type of religion where you just kind of dip in and dip out. There's a lot more emphasis on Bible study groups, connect groups, going to church on Sunday, volunteering. Uh, there's, a, there's an immersion involved, and that can be hugely attractive for young people um, and hugely stabilizing in, in a time and a period where a lot of people feel really isolated, especially when they're in that period of early 20s, which is quite vulnerable. Let's, uh, you know, that emphasizes the community, uh, almost ecclesial nature of evangelicalism is that it provides a belongingness. And one of the things that uh, I thought was very instructive in your book was um, how these kinds of things can shape people's identity. I wonder if you could, could uh, talk to our audience about how communities shape and reshape our our identity and i know identity is a big is a big issue in academic studies but you know more about it than i do so i take a sociological perspectives on the formation of identity as we form our identities in relation to other people so we have ourselves our sense of self mirrored back to us through friends, through family, through colleagues, through people that we encounter and that gives us a sense through difference so an example is gender or an example is race. So through, dif through difference, we understand what our identity is and also through similarity. So in a space like the evangelical community, there is a strong evangelical identity and that's often mirrored back to individuals through some of the practices that I named. So Bible study groups, church services, those events really affirm what it means to be an evangelical. And through the connection and the close support of other evangelicals, you have a strong sense of who you are and you're reminded of that on a really regular basis. And for evangelicals, especially evangelical women, the primary identity is being evangelical. So there's different ways of describing that. You could say your identity in Christ, your identity as a Christ follower. Um, but the root of that is before gender, before your job, before being a sister or a, or a wife or whoever else your identity is, your first primary identity is your religious identity. And that's the most important one. And that's fostered through your connection with other people. 
I have to say it's also fostered through your relationship with God. And that's another relational encounter that I know some um, sociologists or anthropologists are skeptical to look at and, and skeptical to kind of take that seriously. But that is a relationship for evangelicals and it's one in which their identity is also affirmed. Yeah. Well, Laura right now is planning a church. In, Amazing. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, while identity uh, for these evangelical single women can kind of, um, I mean, their identity won't fall apart, but the relationships uh, and their, to the church and can fall apart. I think Laura would uh, be glad to learn from the value of identity shaping formation in, in forming a church. So uh, I was thinking of Laura while you were talking about this. Yeah, identity and culture, because I know Scott has done a lot of work on the idea of how churches uh, form a culture, and the culture is oftentimes shaped by their leaders. So all of this is tied in together, and and as culture is forming, people are forming their identities in that context. So it's fascinating to think about what we're reinforcing. And I was thinking even as you were talking about evangelicalism, um, how we see ourselves reflected back in the similarities and the differences. I think so many times when I gather with other evangelicals now, we're having conversations about what we're reacting against, and we're aligning ourselves more closely with people who are having similar um, reactions against. And that's drawing us closer into these new groups, you know, of, of reaction against. It's so fascinating to think about that. Absolutely. And I think difference is one of the primary nodes where we see identity formation take place. And a, a, mm -hmm. an easy way to see this right now in the U.S. is in relation to politics, right? So everything mm -hmm. that you oppose identifies you politically. Um, right. It's often in that direction rather than what you affirm or what you do believe. Um, but I just wanted to say as well, in terms of kind of creating a new church community, there isn't one way to be an evangelical. There isn't one way to be a Christian. These are kind of empty terms that are very much filled by the environment or the, the social environment that you're in. Um, so what it means to have an evangelical identity is also a very empty term um, that is filled and and flavored, you could say, by the particular community that you're in and the culture of that community. Yeah. Um, and I think that understanding can often get lost in churches or it's invisibilized in a way that it's seen as, well, this is the right way to be an evangelical woman. Um, but that's a culturally inflected view or that's a particular view that mm. maybe the leadership team has uh, from their interpretation of the Bible or their cultural interpretation of Christianity. It's not fixed. And I think having that understanding of it not being fixed gives a little bit more space and a little bit more freedom for other ways of being. Was, it, was that Zizekian that you were bringing in these, these <laughs> signifiers? Uh, we have a, I have a colleague who talks about this a lot. Okay, now I'm old enough to have grown up in the 60s when mm. there was this uh, sexual revolution you know, Woodstock happened. I didn't know much about it. Kent State was bigger for me. I remember seeing the pictures. They were pretty stunning for me. I wasn't real socially engaged in those issues. I was an athlete. Then I was into the church, and we weren't talking about some of this stuff as it said. But um, I was just talking to Laura before, before we got on about the purity culture movement. Now, when this happened, my kids were teenagers. And they didn't come home talking about it. I don't remember purity rings. 
And then I started teaching college students at North Park University. Oh, let's say 27 years ago, something like that. And they were all talking about this stuff and I missed it all and didn't know it. But <laughs> I really, uh, in a sense, you know, this wasn't something about my experience in evangelicalism, but it's a fascinating feature. And I wonder if you'd say a little bit about the purity culture that you found in these evangelical women who were struggling to stay. Yeah. And Laura, I don't know what your background was with purity culture. If you were exposed to it, I'd be really curious oh, to yeah. know. Yeah, that's what Scott and I were talking about. Yeah. I was saying like this was the major feature of almost all of my youth experiences in the church. In youth group, wow. Wow. Um, the women were sort of partitioned off and we were talked to about you know, modesty, about submission, you know, all of these things. And every youth camp, I mean, this comes up, right? And it's reinforced. And my peers reinforced it on each other. Like we were policing one another about issues related to modesty and purity because this was really equated with personal holiness in mm -hmm. our evangelical circles, especially for women. And yeah. we were, um, I think, the gatekeepers for this. Like this was our, our task, our role. And I don't know that the boys talked about it as much. I don't know that they nearly spent it, but it seemed like everywhere we went, this was wow. the topic of conversation, yeah. passion and purity. I probably read it three times, you know, and everybody <laughs> wanted to talk about it. So. Yeah. I think I read yeah. it a few times as well. Um, I'm very hard pressed to find a woman who grew up in evangelicalism in the US in the 90s and early 2000s who was not exposed to purity culture in the way that you're describing, Laura. Mm -hmm. I've met a few here in the UK who weren't exposed to it in the same way, but everyone I've met in the US of that generation, especially women, have a very similar story. And as I describe in the book, there are also women I met in Singapore, South Africa, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, who had very similar experiences. And, mm. and really what struck me was the similarity. You read the same books. You also did the pledges. You also wore the rings. You heard the same analogies about the flower and um, the wedding <laughs> day and, and, and all of this sort of um, culture that went along with it. And I think, my view is that it what it did come down harder on women and there have been a lot of a lot of really great scholarship specifically on the purity movement that really attests to this and and i see this still today you know i go i make it a habit you know if i'm visiting a church for research to go to the the bookshop that they have and kind of check out what they have around sexuality and sex and and most of the books especially related to abstinence or purity are geared towards women so, you know, th that alone is somewhat of an evidence of how targeted this is towards girls and towards women. Um, I do think it's lessened now for young evangelical women that are teens or, or university age currently, um, but it was really at its um, peak in the 90s and the early 2000s, and it really proliferated on, on so many fronts, on a policy front in the U.S., um, on an international policy front, NGO levels, everyday church levels, books, there was a whole material culture element around it. Um, and it was almost inescapable if you were part of those communities. Yeah. And I have a 16 year old daughter okay. uh, who is also involved in evangelicalism. And this comes up and it's so interesting because we've moved 
from a, what I would say a very conservative evangelical church into one that has a lot more openness and mm. her mom's a pastor. So we have these conversations mm-hmm. um, and she's at a camp right now. Before she left, we were talking about the dress code and I said to her, I hate this for you. Yeah. Like, I hate that you, you know, are having to think about these things and the way it's going to be framed for you. We have the kind of conversation where um, we acknowledge Purity is important, but on the other hand, like this policing, this, this attitude about it is really unhealthy. Um, but I just thought it's so hard to raise a teenage daughter when this is my own background and I hear it coming out of my mouth sometimes and thinking about, um, gosh, is this, is this a helpful way to frame this? What, what pressures, because I know the pressures that were put on me, How do I help her navigate this without exposing her to the same level of uh, shame and also mm-hmm. this sense of responsibility that's not hers to bear? Yeah. So that's tough. It's tough as a parent. Yeah. And I, I will say I do hear that from a lot of Christian leaders now is they're aware of the damage that was caused by the purity movement. Yeah. They do want to endorse abstinence for young people, but they don't want all of the negative damaging effects that came with the movement itself. Um, and just on your point on policing is, you know, I was interviewing women in their 20s and 30s and even 40s, and they had started self-policing. So when external policing ends, internal policing continues. And one woman I met would look in front of the mirror before she went out and check all angles that, you know, nothing was too short, nothing was too exposed. And this is a woman in her 30s um, who had grown up with that or been trained in that for so many years that she was still hyper aware of it and conscious of it and worried about it. Well, Katie, I'm glad you brought this up in your book because, uh, you know, it's, it's too easy to study evangelicalism and start talking about theology and uh, evangelism and discipleship. And we're talking about Bonhoeffer and Uh, Richard Foster, and the next thing you know, you're talking about what people were actually hearing. When I was talking to Laura beforehand, she she was saying that she heard this all the time. And I thought, well, did the guys hear it? And so mm-hmm. I had asked her just before uh, you appeared and 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 came into the the squadcast, um, was this done separately for women? Because I don't remember anything like this occurring when I was in high school, junior high. I suppose it occurred in, we did have uh, separate Sunday school classes until we got to high school, I believe. Maybe it was even in high school. So I suppose some of that stuff occurred in that way. So, but I'm, I'm grateful for that chapter um, because I have students who feel shame. They feel guilt. They're angry about how they were treated as women. Their bodies were treated. And this is just going to, put on the on the table a very important conversation that deserves to be heard. Um, I got to tell you, one of the more interesting chapters to me was your uh, discussion of distinguishable marks of the ideal woman. Now, I date myself here, but when I was in college, uh, Mar- is it Maribel Morgan? Do you know this book? The to- Total Woman. Mm. Oh, 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 you're going to have to read this. It's, it's an easy book to read. I'll write it down. But it was sort of like, um, I think it's Maribel Morgan. It was just a huge seller on what the total woman was about. 
It was an <laughs> ideal woman uh, construct. And my wife grew up in, Chris and I grew up together. All right. So we, we don't know if people today that the other one doesn't know. Mm -hmm. This has just been, our fathers were coaches. So she grew up in a house of athletes and it wasn't a girly culture in her like her sister is a was a high school basketball coach and all that sort so so she didn't grow up in this and i remember when we were in college and reading this and she was just like oh this is just ridiculous what is where is this <laughs> stuff coming from but you have a whole chapter on this this ideal woman and i think you're exactly right this this is what a lot of women in evangelical cultures grow up with so Tell us about what's, what are the marks of an ideal woman? <laughs> well, I have to say as well, this was one of those striking similarities between American and British evangelical women is, is how similar their idea of an ideal woman was. And when I would ask for descriptions, I got very similar adjectives. So, um, and they, they had people to point to that they would say, this woman is the ideal woman. So married to a man who's often a pastor or in some sort of leadership role in the church or the community, um, often will have a kid or one's on the way if, if she's been newly married, attractive, white, um, from a middle, upper middle class background. Um, so those are kind of the general broad sweeps. And then there's really specific details that some woman would tell me. So is kind of cool and relaxed enough to drink alcohol, but never enough where she would be tipsy or drunk, um, or is kind of sexy in a way, but never too sexy where it would be violating <laughs> purity standards. So there's all these really tricky negotiations between a little bit this, but not too much that, which seems like this really invisible and impossible line, but somehow these ideal women manage to meet it or know where it is. Um, and often it's a personality uh, as well. So it's not just external. So the internal is, you know, somewhat modeled on the Proverbs 31 woman in terms of being somewhat <laughs> meek and um, oh, going and a servant attitude, um, but also has her own mind and has, you know, some of her ideas and maybe supports her husband on stage on Sunday or volunteers at a local nonprofit organization. Um, again, that's one of those really tricky balances where you're ambitious or you're active, but you're not too active where you would ever overpower your husband or overpower a, a woman's role and you know when to kind of pull back. And as you can imagine, these are very difficult um, characteristics to meet. And so most women fall outside of those norms for one mm -hmm. way or the other. And this can feel intensely frustrating for women who, especially women who are just naturally not that way. Maybe they have a really feisty personality or, you know, externally they're not white or they're not um, conventionally attractive or they haven't been able to find a marriage partner. Then this frustration turns to a deep, deep grief and a sense of resentment and a sense of, you know, striving to be that woman. And then there's a giving up point of, I can't ever be that woman. Why am I not accepted on my own terms for who I am and who God created me to be in this environment? I mean, the, uh, this is a huge issue. I was just at a big event and it was almost all women. Uh, there are maybe 300 women there and 20 men you know something like this and i and i told the audience uh, 
this is important for someone like me because I know how women feel in most theological contexts that are almost entirely men. But the the woman who was speaking uh, was a powerful leader and powerful speaker. And she wasn't this ideal woman. And she talked about how she's, I don't know, she talked about her size. She wasn't, you know, some skinny woman and all this. But uh, it just struck me in that context of how uh, how these images are constructed for women mm. and how women drive themselves to fit that image in order to be accepted. Mm. And evangelicalism shouldn't be doing this. But I, I'm sure Laura, I mean, <laughs> Laura went to Wheaton. I mean, this is sort of the ideal girl in high school goes yeah. to Wheaton. So. Sure. Well, yes, but then you might be too smart. And yes. I, I remember my freshman year, um, in my dorm that all these women, I remember being struck at some point thinking, you guys are really smart. Mm. You, I know you are. Why are you pretending to be otherwise? Mm. That really bothered me because I thought, why, why on earth? That's a gift that you have. And to be here, you have to be at a certain level. Why are you pretending to be less than? And that just really broke my heart. But I, I was thinking about um, how churches reinforce this, um, mm -hmm. women's ministries. And I want to be careful because I think there's some value there. I think there's a lot of good that happens there. Um, it is really dangerous within women's ministries to promote this ideal woman. Um, and I, yeah, the, the, um, I'm thinking of events where all the food is perfect, where the decor is perfect. We spent a lot of time arranging all this. It took an army of volunteers to get it ready. And it's all about creating this mystique or this image of we're these, you know, stay at home moms who have time in the middle of the day to gather and eat finger foods and to talk about our children and to, um, you know, engage in our spiritual life together. It's just laser focused on this image. And if you don't fit in it, you are keenly aware mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think a lot of women that I know, it, it was, I don't fit into this mold and I'm, I'm pretending there are a lot of us here pretending, um, but it's not, it's not who we actually are. I think you make an excellent point, Laura, that what I'm writing about for my research is the ideal single woman, but that doesn't go away. Once you get married, there's new mm. forms of the ideal or the norm that carry on once you are married, once you have kids. Uh, so, so that is, that is the problem, right? Is that ideal. And I think that women only spaces and churches can be incredibly supportive and incredibly important, um, and sustaining. But I also think there needs to be examples of women within those spaces that aren't doing it perfectly and that that can be celebrated as well. Well, your next chapter was so good. Laura has all the, all the questions for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next one, um, was this idea about uh, wounds that never heal. And this one really resonated with me, but uh, you describe in the chapter this movement within large evangelical churches to declare that they need more women, that they're desperate for women in leadership. And you describe a specific event where male pastors were saying they're desperate for women in leadership. 
And all of these gifted women were so excited and so moved from this event, thinking that things were going to change. And then you said, but eight years later, little substantive change had been made. Mm -hmm. And you write that it would almost be easier if these churches would just be honest, that they have zero intention to include women in leadership, um, because then these women wouldn't cling to hope. So I'd like you just to talk a little bit about uh, the role that hope that these women clinging to hope, how that affects them um, and how it impacts their view of themselves. Yeah. So this is a good time to point out that the majority of the women that I studied went to charismatic evangelical churches, all of them, even those that weren't charismatic, theologically endorsed women in leadership. So my own background is I grew up in a conservative Baptist church. My dad was a pastor. It was never an option for a woman to have a leadership role or even to pray mm. from the front of the church, which, you know, was really frustrating for myself because I did want to take up that role. But at the same time, you kind of knew where that boundary was. Um, so I think the denominational aspect is really key. And I think the the church that you attend and how they theologically interpret women in leadership is key. And it's almost more dangerous in spaces where they do support theologically to have women in leadership. Mm -hmm. And yet it doesn't happen and it doesn't materialize because then the blame gets shifted onto the women themselves. So you don't have the theological reasoning anymore to say, oh, we can't have you in a leadership role because this is our interpretation of the Bible and these are all the reasons why. That no longer holds. So what yeah. other reason is there? Well, if, if leadership doesn't take ownership themselves and the, the blame gets shifted on to women themselves and that can come in multiple forms. You know, there's not enough gifted women. Uh, they're not trying hard enough. They're not ambitious enough. You know, there's there's a lot of different reasons I've heard. Um, but this is intensely frustrating for women and frustrating is a really um not even the right word, you know, it deeply grieves women, especially women who feel a calling from God um, to be in a leadership role. And yet that calling is stymied by the church leadership where they are serving. And there are ways that hope is communicated through pastors such as that event saying we really want women. We're desperate for it. I know one woman I came to know quite well, her pastor was kind of mentoring her male pastor and saying, you know, I really want to get you into a leadership role. And yet it never happened. She never was asked mm -hmm. to preach. So hope comes through so many different signs, whether it's a calling from God or a prophetic word that's given at a church service or the uh, a women in leadership event that's organized by the church. But when it doesn't materialize, women are left wondering, why isn't this happening? Is it my fault? And often, you know, it's not just that women have low self-esteem, that blame is directly placed upon them. Um, so hope can can be, you know, I think we tend to think of it in a really positive sense. And what I try to do analytically is treble that association of hope as being positive and say, well, in what ways is hope actually prohibitive of someone's growth mm. or someone's development? Because it's keeping them in a place where they're not able to move forward or they're not able to fill their calling. And how might we rethink hope as an emotion or a, a feeling or a, a experience that isn't always beneficial? Mm. Yeah. I, I think from my own experience, hope was used as a tool to yeah. keep women connected, um, but it was never fulfilled. Mm. So you were in this tension of like, 
the the phrase that was used with me was honestly how patient can you be mm-hmm. so then I, the 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 onus is on me to demonstrate my patience right. and my hope um but it's never coming true right. like we're never moving towards that goal in a meaningful way so then if I push for it, well, then you need to be patient. Mm. And so you're just strung along for years mm. until you s- choose to step outside of that system, which is a super painful step to make because you're walking away from a community you've, you've invested in. Um, but I, as I was reading through that chapter, I thought, oh my goodness, I see this. And I, I've had this conversation with so many women, particularly at Northern, seminary because it tends to attract women who are making that step out of a system Mm. into something new because they felt a call and they've become aware that where they are it's never going to happen yeah and And laura put up with laura put up with a lot of patience she was very patient in a church (laughs) that didn't give her the opportunity at the end and it was terrible i think you know the first time i ever was given a leadership role in the church was in my late twenties, when I had a female pastor for the first time, that was the first time that I was ever asked to speak from the front of the church or take up a leadership role. Mm. And, you know, that's a long time to be waiting for, you know, I really wanted to take up that role. And I think it's not so easy to just leave and find another community because the other community, again, you might find the same problem theologically is endorsing it, but there's no women in leadership or there's only room for one or two women. And, then that creates a whole nother set of problems where women are competing against each other or feel that other women are adversaries because there's only room for one. So we have to get it. Um, So then what a lot of women are left with is the option of just leaving church altogether. And I don't think that that's the right, there needs to be more options for women, which is just leave the church or stay in there and be patient. Yeah. Um, We've gone through a, crap at our church late lately this whole for seven months eight months and uh i've told my wife several times i will only attend a church now that has a woman senior pastor or a woman who is at least close to being the senior pastor and uh, but here here's the thing you just brought up something um and i want to dovetail this to our final question i think that these women that you're talking about wounds that heal can be described as scandalized by the church. My experience with a lot of people is they've been scandalized by the church. They still love Jesus. They still want to read the Bible. They still want to be in pockets, kingdom pockets, as it were. Uh, But they don't want to walk away from the church entirely. But they don't want to be connected to the church that they've experienced. Mm. And I call that they've been scandalized. Mm. Um, In my own uh, work on on conversion theory, which I know you've you've worked on, and I, I was really impacted by Lewis Rambo's book, Understanding mm. Conversion from Yale, yeah. and then I wrote a, a book on it. To me, one of the more interesting things was that all conversions are apostasies. Uh, all apostasies are conversion. I studied apostasy as well, and mm. the, the stories of apostasy. But if if a conversion is an apostasy, there is also a an accompanying narrative of hostility toward the former group. And um, I saw a little bit of that in your book is that people, they had stories to tell and the stories to tell had some heat in them. 
there was some there was some visceral uh, reactions, and and I just kind of wonder, um, what are the features of the hostility that you've seen uh, in people who've uh, in the women the single women who've walked away or close to walking away, what what stories are they telling? What are the marks there? I'd say the two biggest reasons that I see for women who have left has to do with purity culture, as we talked about, mm. or has to do with being unable to access a leadership role. Those are the two kind of biggest aspects. Um, and pure, the purity culture one can encompass waiting to find a husband, it never happening, them starting to look outside the church, the church not being okay with that. So, you know, I, I take that as a, a much larger umbrella term. The women that have kind of fully left are no longer involved in the church, maybe don't even call themselves Christian anymore, definitely have that heat, have that resentment, have that pain. There's a sense of I wasted so many years waiting, trying, hoping for something that never came. And I've been so bruised and so wounded. I don't see that with women that are in this limbo zone, which I call the borderlands, mm. who are still have a foot in the church community and a foot out. That is more a space, and that's why I titled that chapter, The Wounds That Never Heal. That's more of a space of pain rather than it is a hot anger or resentment. So I think there's different affective states. There's different emotions that come up depending on where you are on this continuum of leaving versus staying. But I agree for the ones that have kind of fully left, especially if they've recently left, there's a lot of emotional pain that they're sorting through, resentment, anger. Often women will start seeing a therapist to try to sort through it, to try to make mm. sense of those years that they spent, in their view, giving so much to the church and not getting it back. Yeah. And that's probably true. They probably volunteered like crazy yeah. and were engaged. Yeah. 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 Well, or uh, we're, over to yeah. You. Yeah. Yeah. I just, this has been such a good conversation. And I, oh, I yeah. um, recently got together with a friend of mine from college and she told me she had left her church and this was a, she's brilliant. She's highly engaged. She has so much to offer a church. Um, she's done international development work like this. This is a gifted person. And she said, um, you know, I still love Jesus. The church just doesn't know what to do with me. Mm -hmm. um, and it just broke my heart, but I, I, I can understand at the same time. Um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. But I so appreciated your book. I think it's so helpful. Um, I think it's helpful for women to be able to put names to some of their experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful for pastors mm -hmm. to understand um, the women in their congregations, mm -hmm. especially if they are not female themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it's a helpful tool to understand what women in evangelicalism have experienced mm -hmm. And the wounds that are probably sitting in their congregations to know how to address those. So yeah, I appreciate and I will that. say I get messages every day, and I have for years from women that say, "This is my story. How did you know?" And yeah. they they have variations on the story, of course. Sure. It's never one size fits all, but they feel seen by it, and that was really my mm -hmm. goal in writing the book. You know, I was writing for those women. I was writing for women 
that are still involved in church, or maybe they aren't, but that feel these these frustrations, this marginalization, so that they would know they're not alone. You know, we know in the U.S. and the U.K. that women outnumber men in terms of churchgoers at evangelical churches. So this is a really sizable population. It's a not a fringe group. It's a group that needs to be listened to, that needs to be looked at. It's also the group that's leaving the church in the highest numbers. Um, So I think, you know, that's kind of my plug that I use for pastors that male pastors often who don't want to look at this or don't want to look at the kind of single women's experiences. Um, You know, if you want to keep your the faith alive, if you want to keep your 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 pews filled, then you need to look at this group because they are leaving. Um, And this is the group that has kept the church afloat for the last 50 years. This is in terms of numbers, in terms of like you were mentioning more of the activities that they contribute to and mm. and the functioning, the everyday functioning yeah. of the church. So, um, yeah, that's my plug for well, why I, I it wanna, matters. <laughs> I want to tell you that the, the book is a rebuke to the church and a gift at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thankful for it. And uh, uh, I found, you know, academically, you've got a, a gifted skill of writing and you, you must read a lot of novels because there's plot to this thing. I, I think that's pretty good. And, and um, you exercise caution and you have evidence. It's just, it's just a wonderful book. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm grateful for the work you've done. Thank you so much, Scott. Well, our guest today has been Katie Gadini, and the book is The Struggle to Stay. And I do hope that you will get a chance to take a look at it because I think it's really helpful. And I want to close us by saying that we hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we look forward to being with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Thanks so much. 